In April 2020, just as the global pandemic was kicking off, Lawrence and I started recording our weekly Friday Firesides. These are conversations broadcast live over the Crowdcast platform and joined by people all over the world who listen in and share their thoughts with us via the chat. We started these live recordings as an opportunity to keep in touch with our members, as well as process what it meant to run a business during a pandemic. Since then, we've broadcast nearly every single Friday and built up a library of over 100 episodes. We cover a range of different topics from money to meaning, pricing to purpose, vision to vulnerability, entrepreneurship to empathy, and product design to life design. This is our perspective of what it means to do business from the inside out, as well as the outside in. If you're a business hippie just like us, then you'll definitely find something of value here. We hope that these conversations inspire and motivate you to do work and build businesses that create meaningful change without burning out. Because like us, you're just wanting to make money, do good and be happy. I suppose I'm kind of like, uh, is it a hybrid career? I don't quite know what the term is, but I um, I started sort of writing in my, probably in my 40s and sort of writing and getting published because those two things are obviously separate. You can often write and not be published. And I suppose at the moment, I would probably describe myself as kind of being a consultant, a broadcaster and author stroke journalist. And now I could probably add another string, which would be content creator, because one of the things that seems to be doing quite well on my Instagram is me doing reels where I basically hold up various household items to my ear and pretend that they're a telephone and then have imaginary conversations on WhatsApp. Um, And it's funny because... I've tried so hard and I've worked for different people doing social media, but actually these are probably more popular than many of the other kind of jobs I've been paid to do, um, which just shows you that sometimes you can do something completely unintentionally and people just find it funny and it resonates. Um, So I, I guess I had children quite late, so it's kind of worth saying that, you know, up until I think I had my first daughter at 40, up until then, I was hard to the, you know, I'm trying to think, nose to the grindstone career-wise. So I'd mm. kind of climbed up the, the greasy pole and was at the top of the greasy pole, but very much wanted to slide back down again. Um, and so a lot of what I kind of write about is kind of, I suppose, the disparity between expectations and reality. So kind of expecting the world to be one way, expecting success to be one way and then kind of realizing that it can be another way um and i think that's something that uh, i'm now in my late 40s i've kind of come to realize and it's been a, a positive you know that um i i kept waiting for my life to start and it just didn't start and then i realized i had to start it kind of myself i'm curious about that because you know i've been playing around with this idea of the midlife startup and just messing around with some thoughts based on our own experiences myself and Lawrence in terms of just taking the the back roads of life rather than the motorway in terms of the slow scenic route and then what that means in terms of just a kind of a more emergent winging it approach to work when you say you were waiting for it to start what did start mean um it's it's interesting I think um because I'd done all the things that I suppose at school, you know, as a Gen X kind of generation 
school kid had been told. Um, I'd sort of done all of those things. I'd kind of gone to university. I'd got a fairly good degree. I'd got into a career. I'd stayed in a solid job for 17 years, actually staying with the same agency and had worked my way up to sort of managing partner. So I was kind of managing an office with three other people. And um, I still just kept projecting into the future because I knew that I wasn't happy. So I was earning quite a lot of money at that point. Um, So I had all the kind of materialistic things. I mean, I wasn't massively wealthy, but I was pretty privileged. And yet I was also suffering from lots of physical symptoms. So I was feeling like I had headaches all the time. I was feeling grumpy and drained. I was constantly feeling like in meetings that, I mean, I I write quite a lot about this. I was almost disassociating. So people would be talking. I worked in market research. We did a lot of research into big advertising campaigns or new products that were coming out. And I'd often be sat in meetings just sort of doodling in in the kind of exercise, often quite... I'm sort of saying often quite ridiculous kind of doodles, you know, like drawing, you know, often drawing the clients and sort of, there was kind of part of my personality that was very much um, suppressed in that role because I couldn't, I couldn't show up and be my real self. You know, I'd been like a very playful child, very sort of, I suppose, quite outgoing. And then I feel like this kind of marketing career capped some of that. And so I was kind of pretending that I was someone that I wasn't. And so there'd be this inner voice all the time that would be going, this is shit, you know, this me, this talking bollocks, you know, all this stuff would be going on. And I think that's what was kind of causing a lot of my symptoms, my physical symptoms, because I was trying to squash that person down. And actually, I, I wrote a book, my first book that I got published was about a woman who is struggling in her career. And everybody within that, narrative was was based on people that I, I did actually work with so I kind of I found that quite cathartic but I think it was part of why this is you know sort of called exploding your life is that it was an explosion in that it was this realization that I'm not I'm not happy I don't really know what to do about it I know that what I'm doing at the moment isn't making me happy and and gradually trying to sort of discover what would make me happy and I have to say because some might be thinking god what an amazing position to be in that you can just go and seek your happiness it wasn't like that I didn't kind of drop out and go to Tibet for six months or anything like that to do that that's an option that's only open to a very small minority I think I had to earn money so basically I just started to segue um doing sort of some sort of writing online that was turned into a blog trying to sort of um do some social media stuff that I was interested in and gradually, gradually started to sort of discover work that I enjoyed. And I suppose the writing really, really helped. And I'd, I'd definitely say if you're listening and, and watching and thinking, oh, I'm at a loss about who I am and what I want to do, start writing. And even if that's just a load of brain dump, mm. it's often a really good tool to help guide you into sort of finding out who you are and what you want because I sort of feel that that's what I did. I sort of discovered, I rediscovered this place inside of myself again when I was writing. I realised I, I really enjoyed it. And that's kind of kept me going, actually. So I still work now. So I still I work at, I'm head of brand at a company. It's another startup called Jude, who are, are amazing. And I'm still kind of writing. And I, But I think what's happened is my attitude to work has shifted. So I think now 
maybe other people will feel this is true too but I kind of feel like it's not my core focus anymore there's like me there's my personality there's my work there's my writing there's my relationship there's my friendships there's a whole other load of stuff that exists whereas I think probably for the first 18 years of my career it, it's very narrow it was it was really just work um, and a partner but it was kind of and shopping that was it Results, traditional capitalism thing <laughs> and that was it so i feel like it's much richer now so work is just one aspect of, of my life i think that's an interesting part there this whole identifying with work and that being the thing that we you know we have this narrow focus it's all about the career or the job or the things that we do and I don't know. It feels like it's still a very strong narrative. You know, while younger people are looking, it feels like um, new generation is just trying to understand a different exp- relationship to to work and life and what it means to be successful. There's still a very strong attachment to this idea of that work is the thing that defines us. From your experience, why do we get forced down that path? What is it that just narrows our view and focus of purely on the work? I think it's from, you know, when we're at school, the first question that people ask us is kind of, what are you going to be when you grow up? And we're kind of, we're not necessarily encouraged to say, I'm going to be a great dad, or I'm going to be an Mm. amazing lover to my partner, or, you know, I'm going to do all the domestic admin around the house, or, you know, I'm going to... I'm going to have two cats and I'm going to love them to death. You know, <laughs> you're going to write and, you know, you're really encouraged to just see yourself as your profession. And we carry that on when we go to parties, when we meet other people. Um, we tend to almost immediately ask them, what do you do? You know, what's your job? And we are still very status driven. So there are certain jobs that we kind of might give you extra kind of brownie points and respect and some jobs that might less so. And certainly with me, because I was in market research market research a lot of people when I introduced myself and said I did that they thought I was one of those people with a, a clipboard who kind of come and harass you at <laughs> Tesco you know and ask you 20 questions about how your shopping has been that day and I used to always then sort of I'd follow it up with not that kind of market research like I do other mm. kind of market research and then I would try and name some of the big brands that I kind of worked with and piggyback onto their reputation so I'd be like oh yeah you know so I'm like my big client is kind of like Estee Lauder. You know, I do like loads. Of, so it's kind of, it was very much kind of all of my identity was tied up with work. But funny enough, I didn't feel proud of, of that. You know, I didn't feel, I would feel very empty inside. So when I did use that as an introduction, I didn't feel like, oh, yeah, you know. Um, because I think part of the problem is, is you can never, you can once you go down that route of purely defining yourself by your professional success, there's always going to be somebody who's better than you in the room. There's always going to be someone who is has got more money, a bigger house. You know, it's a it's a very narrow definition. And now I think one of the interesting things is when I meet someone with a really impressive job, I always think, oh, that's great. What about all the other stuff? What about mm. what's going on? And so, and, and often when I read profiles of people, I'll notice that they leave all of that stuff out. So they talk quite often about the daily routine of the the founder of the you know massively successful business but sometimes they they leave the rest of it and I'm like well who feeds your cats and 
you know (laughs) you know what do you what do you love doing with your kids and you know what's the thing that your wife gets really irritated about you know what's your you know why can't we talk about those things because actually the fact that you've done 16 concert schools while you were running on a treadmill at 6 a.m i don't find that impressive that level of (laughs) obsessive productivity is actually really damaging i think uh Hopefully now, one of the things that's happened, I think, post-COVID is that people are starting to think, I want more out of life, you know. Hopefully, I'm, I'm hoping that younger generations are, are thinking, you know, I, I want to find other definitions of success. And I do hear that amongst colleagues when I talk to them, and they're all much younger than me, and, and they do seem to be talking that kind of language. Um, the, the trouble is, is that in London, you know, living in London, you've got to earn a certain amount of money in order just to survive. Mm. So it's still it's still a really tricky one. You can't suddenly go, oh, I'm going to start a business selling beanie hats because that's what I really want to do inside. Mm. Um, so I'm always, yeah, I'm always cautious because I sort of think I've, I still have to, you know, and certainly when I'm freelancing, I do a lot of work I don't enjoy. And I would, you know, I have to go and just do it just in order to earn earn money and i think we all have to do that um but it's just if you can if you could do a sidestep into stuff you're more interested in i really think that's when you're more successful so like my you know my books haven't made me kind of a millionaire but i feel i feel more successful since i've been writing and being published um mm. much more successful than when i was a managing partner and could use that as a as a term to describe myself so on one hand, there's this story or this narrative about the our self-worth and value is defined by how much we do or how much we have. And then the challenge I'm hearing with that is then there's always someone who's done more or someone who has more. And I think we talked about this a little bit in our conversation before about this idea of comparisonitis. We're always looking to compare ourselves. So I wanted to touch on that before we maybe just think about some other ways of thinking about success so from your experience of this whole comparisonitis thing what, what, why why do we fall into that trap um i think as we expect to get the payoff you know so if we've if we've done what we were supposed to do we you know we got the job and we worked really hard and then we got the, the family in the house and the car then we want to feel successful and we want to feel fulfilled inside and so i think quite often we use that to judge other people as well and to make ourselves feel better. I mean, I I think I sort of described it to you. I mean, Miranda Sawyer, who wrote a really good book about sort of being in your 40s, she said um, she's the only one who doesn't have the box on the back of the house. And, she, and the box on the back of the house is effectively the kitchen extension that everybody has as another kind of tick for success. And they all look exactly the same. So, you know, you go to your friend's houses and you go, oh, what house am I in? Am I in, the, am I in you know, Jackie's house or Jean's house? Because they both are exactly the same, but that's definitely a tick box for success. And I get caught up in it too. So I spent a lot of time really mourning the fact that I didn't have the box on the back of the house <laughs> and then kind of realising that in order to get that, I would have to go back into probably a corporate kind of environment again and if I did my my duty there and really got my head down, I could have one of those. And then I sort of thought, I started now sort of thinking, do I want that? And yeah, sometimes I bloody do. Like sometimes I do think like at the moment we've got a car and it's got gaffer tape holding the bumper on because we've, we've not got, we got around to fixing it. And we've also been budgeting. And we've got loads of other stuff to do. 
But I still find myself caught in that trap. And we all have our personal triggers. So yours might not be the box on the back of the house. It might be meeting somebody and realising that they've got a holiday home or they've got a brand of trainers on that you can only buy in Korea and they're like five million pounds. You know, you're all going to have your your flashpoints. But I think I've got better now at kind of taking a step back and thinking, what do you do? What do you have to do in order to get that? And what what do I really want that? Is that actually going to make me make me happy? Because you can still be miserable. I've got plenty of friends who've got enormous houses and their marriages are just bullshit and their relationships with their kids are not great and Mm -hmm. they're stressed. And so I think we all know that that's true, but still we buy into it. You know, because the messages are so strong and pervasive, you know, when we're on the tube, when we're watching TV, that materialism and having a lot of material stuff is what defines you as being successful and makes you happy. And it's very hard, actually, because, you know, I, I, I was totally like that as a child. I totally wanted to have all of that material success. And I think it's only now that I'm realizing it, it, it doesn't work, you know. Within reason, because the thing is, we have to be very cautious that, of course, you need to have a roof over your head. You need to have food. You know, these are all the basics you need to have, you know. I, when you say that, and you mentioned it before, you say this very, very kind of balanced view that I think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You know, there's a certain, well, we have needs for material safety and physical safety uh, in terms of having food on the table and, and, and not feeling like someone's just going to walk into our house and steal stuff. Funny, because I'm still looking in the background and I'm sort of thinking, I wonder what their kitchen looked like. You know, I, still, I mean, I'm still, I still have that kind of schizophrenia a little bit where, you know, I find it hard to not want, you know, not want those things or not to wonder. You know, I have to, if I go and visit somebody, I've one of my best friends has got amaz- an amazing house and I go inside and I feel myself sort of sink, you know, I feel, I feel like mm. I all those voices, like you're not successful enough, you could have achieved this, but you haven't, you know, you made some bad choices, all those things are coming up. And then I'm sort of looking around and then I'm like, I walk away and I still feel this horrible kind of sense of failure, really. That's the only way I can describe it. And then I sort of have to take a deep breath and sort of go, hang on a minute, you're getting wrapped up in that thing again mm. and you need mm. to stop well, you said before you take you you you've been able to take a bit of a st- well a step back, and so I'd be curious to to talk about that. And I think given what we talked about, you know, this this magic number or magic number a number, we we had some comments about the, using the 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 forty number because for some people that's still very young. So okay, cool. And on the we have the majority of people here, the overwhelming majority here are forty and over. There's this thing around, and I remember when I was young, I couldn't wait to get to the age of 40 for some reason in my head. Once I was at 40, it would be all fine, you know, sorted. And and there's this, like, up until then, it, 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 I don't know, there was, it was going to be a roller coaster ride. And then you hit this age of 40 and you're supposed to have done certain things or whatever it is. Achieved, got the certain job, got some, certain type of lifestyle, you know, whatever trappings that modern life is giving you but even then like you're saying we fall into this behavior of thinking oh i haven't got enough it isn't enough because someone else has more than me it's funny because i have a whole lot and i noticed that ray here said about kind of a thought spiral and sort of when you when you get caught up in that and really 
I'm, I mean, I love self-help books and I've been reading them from a very, you know, I probably was reading self-help books when I was about eight, nine years old. And throughout, throughout that period of time, I've kind of gathered a whole lot of tools. And some of them are things like um, exercise, like just going and, you know, doing a, a walk outside. Some of them is actually being with my, you know, being with my kids. There's a kids just walking in here. <laughs> some of it's just kind of like doing that. Um, sometimes it might be doing some breathing. Like I, you know, I do have an app on my phone and I try and basically do a bit of meditation now and then. So it's kind of, there's a whole variety of tools that I kind of use and that gets me out of the catastrophizing. That's what I would call it. Well, there's, there's something for me there about being present. So the, the link I'm making to this whole comparisonitis and maybe just this, these unpleasant feelings that we may get when we go and see someone who's got a nicer kitchen, a bigger house, a nicer car, a more holiday homes. Like you said, sort of like there's a self-criticism, a regret because of an actions that we didn't take in the past. Or there's a kind of a looking to the future of like, okay, what does that mean in terms of where am I going to be if I don't have this house or this space? I, I mean, these kind of like thoughts that take us out of like experiencing what we're experiencing right now i mean I've, I've written about this quite a lot kind of in the 80s there was this whole idea that you know you could have it all you know you could as a woman anyway that you could kind of you know shirley conran wrote this amazing book which actually was misinterpreted which was i think it was called superwoman so it was all about you can have the career you can have the kids you can have the relationship have the friends have them you can have the whole thing and i certainly kind of absorbed some of that information where basically I thought I could have it have it all I do talk quite a lot about kind of people pleasing and I think that's that's another thing about doing the things that you don't love you know judging other people on kind of material things it's all sort of tied in with that notion of wanting people to like you and sort of judging other people and stuff and a, a big thing for me I think was just that post 40 I experienced, a, you know, more recently I've experienced kind of literal kind of losses in terms of, you know, my dad died um, very unexpectedly, sort of probably just two years ago. Uh, you know, I had fertility treatment in my 40s. These, some of these kind of medical sort of things and losing people, I think actually those things, unfortunately, even though you don't choose them, they bring you into the present because you're you're having to... And you're, you're basically gone from somebody who's kind of preoccupied by the meeting that they've got that morning to actually thinking about really big questions, which is like, what happens if I die tomorrow? Will I be will I be satisfied with what's happened thus far? You know, with my parents dying now, are they it sort of sets you off on a path of looking backwards and thinking about their lives and were they happy with the path that they took? And so. Mm. I now find that actually some of those really deep, quite heavy things has helped me stay present because even with things, I mean, you know, even things like grieving, for example, um, it's a very visceral sensation. You know, you do, you kind of feel, you feel quite heavy, you can be crying, you know, you can be very up and down. And I sort of, I think now I'm much more, maybe that is through practicing some of the mindfulness i'm more in tune with my emotions and sort of like my feelings and and not avoiding them and i think a lot of the behavior before i was basically avoiding feelings and so i was running all the time i think a lot of working people are that 
you know people say that to me now they're kind of like you you, you find it very hard to relax and that's true um, and that's that's something I learned from my own parents that we didn't prioritize rest we just didn't you know you were only you had to be busy all the time um, now I think I've probably got better at noticing that too so sort of going hang on you're really you're, you're, you're getting really sucked into that busy thing and you need to come back into this this moment now um something it, i mean it's very hard but i think you, all, you just have to practice it you know um and unfortunately mm. life circumstances can force you into it too another factor around the busyness is that how like we were saying before our value and our self-worth is tied to how much we do and and how impactful or how broad the impact of that doing is whether that's you know managing people in a company or being a ted talker but this whole idea of not stopping and being because it then means that we have to feel stuff or these feelings come up and you know talking about grief and how i think some people try to suppress it and i've been very um, guilty of just like trying to push away the feelings because i didn't know what to do with them it was either ah this feels really horrible how do i put how do i what do i do with this how do I, what, what is this supposed to, what value is this to me to feel shit? Mm. <laughs> but then there's something around how I think I'm seeing, what I'm hearing is I like, actually, it's just the process of feeling shit is, is the, what you need to do. But also, I mean, that's something to not, I mean, it depends what your sort of spiritual beliefs are, but the level of shit that you feel, certainly when you miss somebody is really reflective of how much you love them. So mm. it's really comes back to, now I'm starting to realize that now is that my productivity productivity really took off after my dad died. And I, in lockdown, I wrote two books. I launched a podcast. I was just going mad in terms of doing stuff. And I was totally trying, I mean, now I look back on it and I think, oh, you we were just totally trying to avoid feelings. And it was a complicated situation in, in the situation that, you know, circumstances, it wasn't easy. Um, because he had a problem with addiction and he was an alcoholic. So there was all sorts of other issues as well. Um, but now when I get these heavy feelings, and I do get them still, because that's the other thing with grief is that people often think, oh, you get over it. You, you never do. I still strongly believe that, you know, 10, 20 years on, you have these very, very strong feelings of, of, of loss. Um, I'm now much better at recognizing, but you know, that's, this is normal. Not only is it normal to feel like this, this is a reflection of the fact that you loved your father, you know, and he loved you and that, and you were missing that love. That's the absence of, of but the love is actually still there. It sounds really cheesy, but I'm still mm. carrying that. It's just that I don't have anyone to sort of boing it back to me again. Um, so I think once you sort of accept that it's, it's normal and it's natural. And I would say if anyone, you know, if anyone is grieving, it's really helpful to sort of find resources that, that are kind of filled with other people who are going through it because there's an awful lot of kind of, yeah, you feel so much better just knowing that it's a, the feelings that you're having are, are, are normal, whatever that means. Um, hmm. But I guess, yeah, that's definitely, definitely made me more present, but definitely thinking about my parents and their definitions of success because they, I think both of them were kind of workaholics pretty much. Um, and so now I sort of think, well, it's not surprising that you grew up to be a workaholic <laughs> too, um, you know, and, and like you've already touched on, we, we respect workaholics, you know, um, but we have this strange thing where we sort of go, 
you know, keeping busy. That's another thing that people say, oh, you're keeping busy. And if you said, no, I'm not keeping busy. I'm sitting in the garden doing absolutely nothing. <laughs> you would be judged, you know. Um, so there's this whole, apart from the kind of what are you going to be when you grow up, you know, the kind of keeping busy. And then this this whole notion around kind of judging one another by how much stuff they have. You can see how we get caught in these narratives. Um and it's hard to to jump out. And even with my when I write my books, I still want to have success. I still want to, you know, I have mad fantasies where I want to be on Oprah's book club. And, you know, I want to be, you know, I want to be as big as Marion Keys. And what's that all about? Why can't I just be happy just writing? Um, so there are still, I'm still kind of wanting to be successful. But I guess what, what I want now is to be recognised for the things that I really enjoy doing versus for something that didn't really feel like it was me and my best work you know I was I was sort of trapped in someone else's body for a long time one of the things that we we've been exploring um at the happy startup school in our programs and our coaching is this connection to needs and so a way I would interpret what you're saying before about the feelings, you know, the feelings of grief, feelings of loss, feelings of sadness, because there was this need for connection with someone, with your father who's no longer around. And then how identifying these things, these feelings and what they connect to in terms of these needs are, are ways to navigate our way forward and understand what, what kind of actions we need to take. And I'm linking that to this, you know, we're talking about how do we navigate than the second half of life, let's put it this way, given that we've used a certain compass in the past, uh, which was this objective measure of success based on some kind of numeric uh, approach. You know, you, we, do, we talked about we, we've been led by other people's metrics. What is your now, now your process of defining that and working with that? You said about doing stuff that you love and being known for that. How you, how, what is it that's helping you define those things um it's an interesting one i mean one of the exercises that i find really helpful like i said is writing a lot so using writing not just writing for publishing but just writing for myself what i've found is that when you write there tends to be a, a gut kind of feeling which points you in the direction of the thing that you want you know you're sort of like oh the more that you write the more you're kind of like oh this is how you know this is what i love doing this is kind of how i feel it helps identify what you don't want as well. I mean, I wish I kind of what I wish is that I discovered way earlier because I mean, there may be people who are listening and they're kind of like that little voice that's on your shoulder that's going, This is shit. I hate it. I hate this. This, this jerk is driving me mad. You know, I, I want to, you know, all those thoughts, listen to them. Don't just go, Right, I'll have some booze and that will shut that one up. Or, you know, I'll go and have an affair with someone and then I'll feel better about myself. Or whatever those things are that we use to numb or escape. Listen to that voice. And I think all that's happened with me is I've got better at listening to it. And then I, once I, once I listen to it, Sometimes that voice isn't right, by the way, because sometimes the voice can be like, you're really shit and you're a failure. This is another voice, which is really your gut, which is kind of telling you who you are. Um, and if you're feeling increasingly every time you go to work, feeling like the real kind of, it's not coherent with who you are, then listen to that. Um, and I think that's all I've probably done, but I've also had to take direct action. So I basically had to, 
you know, I was lucky in that I was made redundant from work. And within that redundancy, I got a payout. If I hadn't got that, I wouldn't have been able to then embark on a sort of hybrid career of my own. Now, almost every decision I make is driven by the fact of financially, is it rewarding enough that it's worth my while? Or is it something that I would love to do? So like, you know, if I love doing something, I will do it. And does it feel like the gut voice is going, yeah, that's great. That's brilliant. You do that then I do it. Um, if it's really financially rewarding, I do it. If it's neither of those things, then I don't do it. Um, it's kind mm. of, and I think the older you get, the better you get at identifying that. So you're kind of, you know, now I used to spend a lot of time because I was very much in the sort of Instagram world where there were so many people pre-COVID where it's like, let's go and have a coffee, you know, let's go and have a coffee. And I would go and have coffees with a million different people and now I'm just like, no, I don't want to have a coffee. Like, I'll be completely frank with you. But unless there's something happening out of this, like, be it hmm. a friendship, i.e. we feel some sort of gut connection that we're going to be friends, or there's some work coming out of it, which is going to be well paid, or it's going to be some creative pursuit that I'm really into. I'm not into it. Do you know what I mean? I won't, hmm. I won't do it. And I think through using that kind of traffic light system of red, you know, amber, green for everything life gets a lot easier and you just find yourself doing more of the thing and it's funny because I'm now at a bit of a crossroads because I've kind of realized I've written five books and they've been published but I'm not living off the proceeds of that so I'm now at the point where I'm kind of I could write another book but actually what I want to do is take some time and reflect on what I want next and obviously I'm working at the same time but it's kind of am I going to just keep on writing books am I still happy writing books and not getting a sort of salary out of it you know um mm. what, what do I do um and it's interesting because actually it's the two things it's kind of the material you know there is still that materialism about wanting to be a Sunday Times best-selling author but yeah I, I mean I actually think for anyone who's kind of in their 40 not 40 or is just in early 40s I really do strongly believe that life gets better as you get older um and I didn't believe that for a long time and for women, I think ageing in particular is a really quite a tricky thing to navigate. But I do, now I do. I sort of, I sort of if, as long as you're lucky enough to have your health, hmm. I think in terms of your clarity on what you want, it becomes much, much clearer. And that's why they call it the midlife crisis often, is that it's the, it's the snake shedding its skin. You know, the old, the old sort of skin comes off and the new snake comes out, whatever. Probably not a good analogy. Um, but <laughs> you do feel, feel, you know, you're like, right, I've got no time for bullshit. I don't want to waste time having coffee with people I don't like. You know, I don't give a shit about your big car. You know, you can drone on about your holiday, but I'm not going to listen to it because I know that's not what I want at the moment. And you sort of, yeah, I think you do. You just become much much less tolerant of uh, certain things, which, which makes your life better. Sounds like you're a point now of reflection. You know, you're saying, okay, what? Well, given everything I've done so far, where do I want to go next? And I, I, I've come to value that much more recently in terms of not the incessant doing and, and, and just plowing on. Um, those stopping and just thinking just feels and I still have a bit of a reaction to it because it, it feels a bit too passive but there's something here around given what you said before there's something here around feelings there's something about just just checking in and then then being able to to carve out the the right strategy the right path for the future based on what you've learned 
so far. And it could be a completely different path because you think, okay, you know, this isn't working, so I'm going to do something else, um, which I think is challenging for some people. And so a question I had was really around how has your tolerance for risk evolved over mm. time? I think it's really interesting when we think about risk because I think I was really risk averse, which is obviously why I stayed in the same job for so long. Um, but because I came from a, you know, we're all, we, we are the way we are because of our childhoods. And I think my childhood, we moved a lot. We lived in different countries. My parents were divorced. Um, we had what would be described as a bohemian sort of upbringing. You know, I have something like upwards of, I can't even keep count, six to nine sort of step and half brothers. You know, my mum married three times. I mean, none of that's judge, judgy. But what I wanted stability for a long period of time actually that's what I wanted and actually now I mean children come into it actually is that now I'm probably more um, open to taking risks you know like now I'm even considering like do I want to move to a different location but the children are now the big factor of kind of like is that going to be okay or not uh, what about that you know I think we're much more cautious now my parents really did not I don't think they they were not inconsiderate but they did, they lived their lives and children lived with them. They didn't live their lives for their children, which is what we tend to do now. It's like everything we do is driven by what they need. They've got a play date, we all go to the play date. They've got an activity, we all go to the activity. Some of it, I think, is not particularly healthy um, necessarily. But yeah, I think into your question, I'm, I'm probably, I wish I, was, I could take more risks, but I've now got, you know, I have to consider them too. I can't just go off and do whatever I fancy, you know. So maybe I'll take kids out of the equation then, because that is a very specific case in point, because we have, uh, well, there's a sense of responsibility, uh, not only for their physical well-being, but also their emotional well-being and how these, how how the choices we make in the present will potentially impact their futures in all sorts of ways. And, I, and that's that's an interesting thing there for me. But at a personal level, you said, you know, your, it sounds like your appetite for risk is, bit, is greater how's your relationship to risk changed why are you feeling forgetting the kids that you'd like to shake things up or you're happy to shake things up more i think basically um probably the age that i am probably losing my father had a big role in that because i think i i I realized that i'd had so many conversations with him around the things that he was going to do when he retired so he was like you know when i retire i'm going to do this and i'm going to he always used to say when i retire i'm going to write a book he was a doctor in philosophy, so he was like an academic. And he died without having, he didn't retire. He didn't get to retire the year that he was supposed to retire, that it happened. And I think the whole notion of retirement is weird anyway, because it's kind of like, what, you're going to live your whole life not enjoying yourself just so you can sit on a cruise in a Hawaiian shirt or smoking a cigar and then die. It's kind of, it's just weird. It's like you're storing up just for that retirement moment. Um, I think for me now, I've sort of felt, look, it, you know, it sounds really grim, but, you know, death can come at any moment and we never really know what's going to happen to us. And as we get older, we just, we have no no idea. And so it is a bit of that cliche of I've got to do the things that are going to make me happy and fulfilled now because I can't, you know, I might be exactly the same. I might retire and pop my clogs the next day, you know, and then, you know, I'm kind of, I'm often trying to keep that perspective now of, I think along with my own voice, there's also my father's voice now sort of saying, listen, Nick, you need to get a move on, you know, do the stuff that you want to do. 
because you know you've it, it's you haven't got that long left you know on the planet and so you can't keep putting off like thinking you know I kept thinking I thought you know when I'm 40 I kind of had this idea that you know I was going to be living by the coast you know I thought that might have happened it hasn't happened that's kind of one of the things I really want to do I want to go and swim in like in the sea I haven't really you know I've done that I like the idea of doing that I like the idea of you know sampling life outside of London I've lived in London mm. for a long time but I'm starting to fall out of love with it now but the other problem is that I have this whole idea that when I live there I will have a different life and my life will be completely different to the way it is now suddenly I will turn into a very active sport <laughs> you know sporty outdoor person there's something about having children that we also need to consider when it comes to our work and how fast we want to move with work so i just wanted to just help invite you to touch a bit on that to just for anyone who who is having who does have children and they are trying to do something different or move forward with a change yeah i mean i found it really tough in that i'd had so much of my life without children and then suddenly to i think a lot of men and women find it tough i think they traditionally they always say it's tougher for women but i think it's for both in that you suddenly can't, you have to slow down. I mean, you've got to, they've got this little thing that you've got to look after and you've got to, you know, everything's around their routines and stuff. I still kind of haven't got it entirely sussed out. The one thing I do know is that I couldn't, I wouldn't be able to function if I was staying at home with them all the time. Like I know, I know that for myself because um, I know that, and I'm lucky enough in that, because a lot of, you know, childcare is so expensive. I'm lucky enough that I can earn enough to pay for childcare because that's a big, <laughs> that's a big thing for a lot of people. You know, childcare is so expensive. I feel the eternal guilt all the time because I'm always feeling like whenever I'm doing something for myself, I feel like I could be doing something for them. And the other thing, which I think we're all familiar with, is there's just so much admin that goes around looking after children. There's kind of, there's obviously being with them. But then there's this, all this other shit, like kind of, you know, we've got lots of WhatsApp kind of channels, which is partly why I started taking the piss out of WhatsApp on my Instagram, because I was getting sort of upwards of kind of 15 messages a day about, is it PE day? Is it World Book Day? Can you bring a card in for the teacher? You need to log onto this platform and, and do a donation because there's a workshop happening. Um, can you, you know, I don't know, there was just so, can you volunteer for the PSA? You know, all of this really quite, some of it's really good. Obviously, we need to do that stuff. But I felt like it's a lot of unpaid work. And I'm sure if there's mums who are watching, and I know we touched on this before, unfortunately, a lot of that work can fall onto the mother rather than the father. So the mum has a, a job, then it's unpaid work, which is organising her kids, you know, entire universe every day. Even thinking ahead, it's boring stuff. It's like, is there clean socks in the drawer because they've got to go to school tomorrow? You know, where's the brownie uniform? Um, I end up doing this thing when I'm at work where I'm WhatsApping other mums because my partner's at home and he's got to get one of them to brownies. So I'm basically organising his childcare at work whilst I'm in a meeting. And this is one of the bugbears where I think there's loads of interesting books about it where that's a big distraction. You know, if women, you know, I'm pretty sure that Sheryl Sandberg doesn't deal with that, you know, and I mean, I know she's a controversial figure, but I think if you women could probably achieve far more if they weren't continually being dragged down. It's like having big, massive stones in your pockets every day that you're sort of carrying around. So certainly when they're... It's been a massive compromise because I feel like I, I, I discovered what I wanted to do and then I had kids and the kids have slowed me down significantly. 
but you know I chose that and I was lucky enough to have you know to be able to have them so um people keep telling me it gets easier um but I don't know if that's true I don't know if it is true I think that's a myth it is it is true it is true it gets different and it does get easier um I just want to bring in Lawrence because well from my I I had my second child when we just started the happy startup school and I think um my wife has a different opinion as to whether that was a good thing or not um <laughs> we were lucky we both had kids around the same time when we were growing our business or starting it and so we were lucky I think that we had similar goals and visions for how we wanted to work as co-founders together which I think is quite rare which probably helped that we were friends before um but yeah I think it's it's a new phenomenon I think this idea of like you said putting our kids first my dad always said they've come to live with you not the other way around and that was one of the things that really stuck with me is like don't change anything because you've got kids just they'll they'll follow you so if you want to go make a change mm -hmm. go make it um which sounds easy right it sounds so easy but i think it's really yeah, hard i to love do. that i do love that advice though i think that's really but that's how my parents behaved very much um mm. you know so we did we traveled a lot but it's just having that back it's like being able to be free but also offering them that stability because i think oh, that was something that i felt like i lacked was it was kind of I, I wanted to have a kind of very traditional upbringing. I wanted to have, you know, I used to say to my mum, I'd go like, oh, you know, I want a mum who's like wears a pinny and makes me cakes and stuff. You know, I don't want a mum who's got pink hair and a nose ring and is like going off to Nicaragua, you know. I just don't <laughs> so it, it is hard. But I think it's good for them, actually, a bit of change because yeah. they're going to have to navigate change, you know, numerous times. And also, I think the final thing I'd add to that, I mean, we work with a lot of people who are, like you said, navigating this, transition let's call it i always just say to people like, i always just think if you can be the best version of you then that's good for the kids even if it means maybe they sacrifice something in the short term you know it might not be they get all the the best trainers or the best of everything but hopefully you'll be a better person around them and longer term it's better for them so i don't know i think there's sometimes we have this responsibility of they all expect everything and so we need to put them first but yeah yeah i don't think that's always good for them if the collateral damage of that is we end up doing something we don't want to do which is not good for anyone yeah and then, and then they're seeing you because they're going to model themselves on you too so they're basically seeing you not living the life that you want and thinking exactly. that's okay yeah there's something here around any resentment that colors anything that you do for your kids i think if there is any of that element of resentment then that's going to come across and so, you know whether if you have to sacrifice going doing something f so that they can do something for themselves um there's also the whole material aspect of things and wishing that they could have certain things. Uh, my my feeling around this ultimately is if they can feel confident in themselves, um, because we're all destined to fuck up our kids some way or the other. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, the, for me, if we can make sure that no matter what, they feel that someone there loves them and is always mm -hmm. there for them no matter what and loves them for who they are they might not get everything they want but they will get what they need which is essentially a, a solid foundation of self-confidence and mm. um self-awareness even hopefully yeah, yeah it's also the, the ability to apologize because that was something that i mean i've screwed up quite a few times I, I find that often in the mornings yeah i'm struggling in the mornings to get them both ready and out and everything um and i think sometimes when i'm in that position I just apologize. I do apologize, which I th I'm not sure my parents did that often. You know, they didn't. If they did screw up, um, yeah. Well, it's, I think it's about being human, 
and letting them know that we are human as well because then they don't feel like hey we're on this massive pedestal and though everything that we say is gospel um, yeah. i think there's an element of love respect but also them to realize that it's okay to get it wrong because mm. if they don't think that it's okay to get it wrong you know the classic thing you won't learn i'm conscious of time and then lawrence needs to go and pick up his son to be a, a responsible father um is there anything that's happening in that you'd like to point people towards if people want to get to know you? Where oh, would you like the them to go place, to? Well, if they could, I would love it if they could go on Amazon and they'll they'll see a, an array of books there. Um, they can pre-order one of my books, um, which is out in August. That would be fab. Um, it's nice. A big quit. If they want to just have a bit of a laugh, then I would say go on my Instagram, which is just at Anarchy Somerville, all one word, um, because basically you can just watch a woman in wigs tending to be on whatsapp brilliant i think that's that's probably it's a bit of light relief i mean that's something we didn't touch on but that is very important too sometimes is not to take ourselves too seriously well yeah. if we can't laugh at half at half of the things that we have to experience particularly as parents and the challenges we have to face and doing the work parenthood balance um yeah it's just it gets desperate then uh so well, thank you very much, Aniki. Uh, if thank anyone you. listening to this is curious about uh, Aniki's work, the links are in the chat. Being amongst other people who are navigating this whole thing as well, um, to feel connected, I think, is the other thing we want to, to create with this conversation. Awesome. Thanks, Aniki. Well, Thanks, everyone. Until next thank time, you, see you, everyone. You take care. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Happy Entrepreneur Podcast. To hear more inspiring conversations like this, Follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Just search for The Happy Entrepreneur. In March, we'll be launching Tribe 7 of our Vision 2020.